invite you to stay standing for the reading of the word this morning. This text comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, and then verses 57 and 58. Hear God's word for us this morning. After those days, Zechariah's wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she remained in seclusion. She said, This is what the Lord has done for me in this time, when he looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace that I have endured among my people. Now, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown his great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You can be seated. And let me pray as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So we are in week two of this Advent series that we have called Advent and Desire, uh, where we are asking the very prescient question, what do you want? What do you truly desire? And I, and I found the ways in which this is already sort of embedded into the Christmas experience when I was uh, running carpool for one of the kids today, and there was like a moment of silence, and as a dad, I have to kind of break in, right? And, uh, and I said to, to one of my daughter's friends, uh, so what do you want for Christmas this year? Just a question that we ask, right? Desire is embedded in this experience for us. Um, it's a season where maybe we become aware of our desires. Not only that, but one of the things that we're trying to impress upon all of you in this season is that our desires are actually formed by the desires that we see and experience around us. That big box, that little fancy bag, that vehicle that has a big red bow on it. Uh, we observe the desires of others, and it shapes our own desires. And for this reason, we're asking that question for ourselves, but we're also looking at characters in Advent texts of Scripture and looking at their deep desires to see how their example might form us in our own desires. So last week, um, you can see kind of where we're headed. Joy uh, led us through the story of Zechariah. Um, Zechariah was a man who desired certainty. Certainty. That was his deep desire. He questioned the good news that the angel uh, brought to him when he said, you're going to have a son. And as a lesson, Zechariah was made mute for months on end during his wife Elizabeth's pregnancy. Joy actually led us in a time of silence to investigate uh, our desires. And I was pretty convicted that three minutes of silence felt like a really, really long time. That probably tells me that I need a little more silence in my life. Um, not sure if it was the same for you if you were here last week. But it was in that silence that I got to ask that question, Jesus, what do you want me to desire? What would be your desires for me? So we'll continue to look at various characters and what they desire. But today we look at the other side of Zechariah's story, and that is of his wife, Elizabeth. What does this woman desire, and what might we learn from her? So I'm really excited about this text that I already read for you today. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited about this sermon today, and here's why. Uh, a little bit of um, uh, just... A, a little bit of inside insight into to sort of preparation for us. 
Um, I've been preaching and teaching and planning and preparing sermons and liturgies and devotions and teachings and all that kind of stuff for Advent for almost 20 years of full-time ministry. I plan to do it for another 20-plus years. Um, but that's five Sundays a year of Advent, plus a ton of other like little events that are going on in the Advent season, with really only four chapters in the Gospels to really preach from uh, for those texts. And that's if you're being generous, because over half of that content is after Jesus is born, um, and, and, and one half of those chapters is the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. So really you're talking about two and a half chapters of scripture from from Matthew and Luke, Mark doesn't have a, 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 any Advent texts. So, so yes, there's content from the books of Isaiah and the epistles and, and certainly the Gospel of John chapter 1. But in terms of a pure Advent text that talks about the birth of Jesus, the material is really limited. And, and just to be honest, sometimes it can feel like for us as pastors, we are sort of retreading the same basic content uh, year over year, and most of my efforts in this season is, is to try and find fresh new angles so that it stays fresh for me, because I feel like if it's fresh for me, maybe it'll be fresh for you too. Um, I never ever repeat a sermon or a talk, so this is kind of a challenge for me to keep this fresh. But that's when we're reminded that God's word is living and active, which means that even texts that have been combed over ad nauseum can jump up and surprise us. And that's what happened to me this week. I've been reading and hearing Luke chapter 1 for my entire life, um, and, and I heard something new this week, uh, something that I'm going to focus on this morning. It's in verse 24. Maybe it stood out to you too. After those days, Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, conceived, and for five months, she remained in seclusion. Why? Have you ever had anybody explain to you why Elizabeth was in seclusion for five months after conceiving her child? Anybody ever heard a sermon on that? I haven't. I've never even asked the question. But the more that I pondered this strange clause, the, the, the stranger it became. So I began to dig a little deeper. I took every single commentary off my shelf. I, po I combed through as much as I possibly could of uh, people way smarter than me. Every commentary, nothing really of substance. A few ideas here and there, but nothing really conclusive. I asked my colleagues, who you, you all know is, are smarter than me, uh, Simon and Joy, they're like, no, I don't know, I've never really thought about it, i never heard anybody talk about that. So here's where I want to start with this. I want to begin to ask this question. I want to start with some logic, okay? Um, Luke thought enough of this piece of information that he put it in his gospel. If you studied Luke, you would know that he's a pretty bright guy um, and that he's very, very intentional about what he adds to his gospel. Details matter in the gospel of Luke. He does not waste words. So I can really only think of two reasons why Luke would add this information. Either because five months of seclusion at the onset of a pregnancy was customary for a Jewish woman in the first century, or because it was not customary, it was actually abnormal. Now there's nothing in scripture or other first century liter literature for that matter to indicate that this was a normal practice for purposes of, of cleanliness like we might suspect. In fact, uh, we would expect that seclusion, if it was going to happen in pregnancy, would happen at the end of pregnancy and after the birth, but certainly not in the first two trimesters of a pregnancy. Furthermore, um, we know from Luke chapter 1, same chapter, that, that uh, Elizabeth's relative Mary comes from Nazareth to visit her while she is still in her first trimester. So clearly five months of seclusion did not apply to Mary because she traveled uh, across Galilee to go and be with Elizabeth. It seems, logically, that Luke added this piece of information because 
This was not typical. This was an atypical thing for a pregnant Jewish woman in the first century. So why would Elizabeth act in an atypical way? Uh, here's what we know about Elizabeth. Um, Elizabeth was past childbearing years. The text tells us that. It doesn't tell us how old she was, um, but it does tell us that Zechariah and Elizabeth were both in advanced age. That meant that Elizabeth had either entered or already gone through menopause. We also know that she had been unable to conceive or carry a child, which the New Testament labels as barrenness. What an awful label, by the way. I just want to own what an awful label that is, barrenness. And we know from her own lips that this was a great source of shame for her. Elizabeth and her husband are noted as righteous, upstanding people, people who follow God, yet she was a woman who, in her own words, was disgraced. Disgraced. Shame. She had lived a life of, of public shame for not being able to have a child. Um, I'm really glad that the stigma of infertility is greatly reduced in our day and age here today. Um, but it's important for you to know that in the first century, having children was a sign of God's blessing. And it was seen as shameful to not be able to carry on the family line, to not have children who could grow up and take care of you in your old age, and to have a womb that did not bear fruit. So for however long Elizabeth had lived as an adult, she had been the subject of public shame. Every time she went out, she felt that shame. And it limited her social circle, and it limited her lifestyle. And it limited her standing among men and women around her. She lived a life of deep shame. Certainly external shame, we know that, from the people around her. But I think it's safe to say, too, that there was probably internal shame going on. There must have been a, a natural sense of internal shame. And many of you have asked this question in, in various times of your life. What's wrong with me? What did I do to deserve this? Am I the problem? Is it some sort of sin in my life that's caused this to happen? So there is a theory that Elizabeth stayed in isolation for five months because of caution. Um, she, would have been a, uh, she would have been someone who was a high risk for pregnancy at her age. So perhaps she felt safer just staying at home, uh, out of the public eye so that she could, um, when she was sure that the baby was okay, she could show off her baby bump for everybody to to see. Um, after all, if she overexerted herself and lost this pregnancy, lost this child, that would only heap more shame onto a life that had already been defined so much by shame. Now, this is a plausible reason why she is in seclusion for five months. But I have a, as I read the Gospel of Luke, I think Luke would have mentioned this if this were the case. Um, the text tells us that Elizabeth says, either during those five months or right at the tail end of those five months, she says, this is what the Lord has done for me in this time when he looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace that I have endured among my people. But isn't this kind of a strange thing to say if she is in her house by herself? Because it was shame that drove her into seclusion. The shame and scorn of other people. The shame and scorn that maybe she had for herself. Yet, she claims that God has taken away her shame and her disgrace. So here's what I want to bring home for us this morning. Elizabeth's deep desire, we're looking at the desires of these characters. What is her deep desire? Her deep desire in this passage is to be free of a life of shame. That's Elizabeth's deep desire, to be free of a life of shame. 
And the pronouncement of a child upon her, that she was pregnant with a child, was exactly that. It was an instant freedom from shame. And yet, she doesn't live into that freedom in this text, does she? Imagine Zechariah coming home. He's unable to speak. He, he, he's making crazy hand gestures. He grabs a tablet, and he explains to Elizabeth that she is miraculously pregnant with a child. Oh, so that explains the morning sickness that I'm feeling and the fatigue and all these other things that are going on in my body. You would think at that point she would want to go and tell other people, right? She would want to go out in the streets and be like, hey, I'm good now. You don't need to shame me anymore. I have a child. She wanted to be redeemed. You would think she'd want to be redeemed by a society that had marginalized her to celebrate this incredible gift. Now, I understand caution. Uh, my, my wife and I, we have our own stories of pregnancy losses. We understand that, that, that idea of caution. But, but if God said, hey, you're pregnant, you're going to have a child, and then God made your husband mute so he couldn't speak, I would think you would have the confidence that you were indeed pregnant. And surely within those five months, she started seeing signs of that. You'd be, I would think you'd be eager to run out into the street and be free of the disgrace and the shame. But instead, what does she do? She goes into seclusion. She goes into seclusion. So here's my theory. And even if this theory is wrong, I know that the truth behind it is biblical. I, I think Elizabeth is in months of seclusion because even though she believes in God and in his goodness, she is driven by shame even though it's already been removed from her. That's what I think. She's driven by shame, even though that shame has already been removed from her. I think that even as she's saying, the Lord looked favorably on me and took away my disgrace, and that the disgrace I've endured among my people, I think even as she's saying that, she is sitting alone in her house, afraid of being the object of shame yet again. And my friends, that is how shame works. And it still works that way today. I have no doubt that there are a number of you here today, maybe many of you here today, who are racked by guilt and shame. Perhaps a parent disciplined you when you were a kid publicly and other children teased you about it. Maybe you were falsely accused of cheating in school and you were unjustly punished. Maybe your reputation's been marred in some way and you've spent years trying to live it down. Maybe you did something wrong, but you were improperly corrected, and you've carried embarrassment for your actions ever since. Maybe you're hyper-aware of the sins that you've committed, and it causes you to feel shame on a regular basis. Maybe you have just tons of internal sources of shame from inadequacy, and you, and you feel like you're unable to have any grace for yourself. Maybe real awful wrong has been done to you by somebody else, and yet you blame yourself. You feel shame. Shame is a loss of dignity, and it's a source of great emotional pain. And shame, what it does, is it causes us to hide either by medication or isolation. I see self-medicating self in our community all the time, by the way, due to shame. 
alcohol, adrenaline, sex, consumption, workaholism. And from the very beginning, shame has been causing people to isolate, right? Look at Adam and Eve. After the first sin, what are the, what's the first thing they do? They hide from a God they could never possibly hide from. I think Elizabeth's hiding in her five months of seclusion, and I think we do it today. We hide from God. We push away those people who are closest to us who could help us the most. We create layers of busyness and justification as armor so that we don't have to deal with shame on a regular basis. And here's the tragedy. Their shame, our shame, has already been dealt with. And we so often act as if it has not been dealt with. We might even say, like Elizabeth, God is so good to me. He, I've got freedom in him. And we might even mean it or want to mean it in our hearts, but then we go on living in that shame that has already been taken care of. Um, I've got a great illustration for you. This is a super exciting sermon because I also get to use an illustration that I've had in the back pocket for like years waiting for the right text. Um, I want to tell you the story of, of a man named Hiro Onoda. Um, in 1940, Hiro Onoda uh, enlisted in the Imperial Japanese Army. Uh, he was 19 years old. He distinguished himself very early as a loyal and fearless warrior and soldier. Uh, he was promoted very quickly to officer. Uh, in 1944, he was sent to Lubang Island, um, that's in the Philippines, um, in, in what would become the waning months of World War II. Uh, he was given orders uh, as an officer on that island to do two things, hamper any enemy attacks on the island and never ever surrender for any enemy attack and never surrender. As Anoda put it in his own words, quote, I became an officer and I received an order. If I could not carry out my order, I would feel shame because I'm very competitive, end quote. So he engaged in brutal guerrilla warfare. And when Japan surrendered to end the war in 1945, uh, Onoda didn't believe it. He thought it was a ruse. Um, he was ordered to never surrender. And he said, I'm not going to surrender. The Japanese government even dropped pamphlets in the jungle on that island to tell soldiers that the war was over, that they could go home. But he, and, and he received some of those pamphlets, but he thought that they were a ploy by the Americans so that he would come out of the jungle, they would capture him. And, and so instead, he continued fighting. He survived off bananas and coconuts deep in the jungle, occasionally pilfering rice from local farmers. If you can believe it, Anoda stayed in that jungle until 1974, 29 years, living mostly in caves. Uh, for the early years, he had other people with him, but for much of that time, he was completely alone. Uh, he was actually declared dead in 1959, uh, but there was a Japanese student uh, who didn't believe that that was true and actually went into the jungle and found him in 1974. Onoda told the student that he would not surrender and he wouldn't come out of the jungle unless he received official orders from his commanding officer. So they actually brought his commanding officer, um, who was an old man at that time, to come into the, from Japan to the Philippines to come into the jungle to relieve him of his duty. Here's a picture of him leaving the jungle. He left the jungle weeping in his imperial uniform clutching his sword at his side. You can see sort of a white sword at his side. Uh, when he was asked, what was going through your mind during those 29 years in the jungle? Anoda simply said, nothing was going through my mind but accomplishing my duty because if I did not do my duty, I would be forever shamed. 
Friends, hear this. Let me have your eyes. When we live out of shame, we are fighting in a war that has long since ended. We recognize Jesus in this Advent season, God in human form, that he comes to humanity as a savior to end the war of shame. You need to hear this today. Shame is not one of God's tactics. It's not the way God works. It might be a helpful motivator from us, for us from time to time in our lives, but God does not desire shame for you. He doesn't use that as a tool to teach you things. If you experience shame today, you need to know that those feelings, that pain that you're feeling, it's not from God. God came in the person of Jesus to take that shame away from you. It's the evil one who uses it for shame. It's the evil one who loves that tactic. The evil one wants you to believe that there is a war of shame that's still raging around you and that you need to go into a cave and isolate somewhere just to survive. The evil one wants to shame you and blame you and rush you and push you and frighten you and confuse you and discourage you and worry you and obsess you and condemn you. But God wants to free you and still you and lead you and reassure you and teach you and encourage you and comfort you and calm you and graciously, lovingly convict you. The evil one says, sit in your shame, medicate, isolate, and keep fighting no matter what. And God says, I ended that war a long time ago. Come on out. Come out of hiding. Be free. So is the lesson here from Elizabeth that she as a, as a person just desired to be free from shame, but she just didn't have enough courage to rid herself of it? No, that's not the lesson of Elizabeth. I think the lesson in this, in this verse, at least today, is that shame is powerful. Shame is a powerful agent. It makes us hide. Even when we might desire deeply to be free from shame, it has an irrational power over us. But we actually see in Luke chapter 1 that Elizabeth is freed from shame in this narrative. Verses 39 through 45, you've, if you've been around churches in these Advent seasons, you've heard this before, but hear it fresh. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believes that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. When did shame begin to lose its hold in Elizabeth's life? Well, a couple of things. First, she welcomes Mary, who, by the way, was in a much more shameful position than Elizabeth was. If being barren was, was seen as a point of shame in the first century, having a child uh, uncertain of who the father was out of wedlock, that was exponentially more shameful. So opening your doors to such a woman was, 
a social risk for Elizabeth, and yet she welcomes her in. And what happens when she welcomes Mary in is that she is no longer alone in her shame. She's no longer alone in her shame because, second, she encounters Jesus. Jesus is in the room with her. The presence of Jesus makes the child John leap inside of her. And what is that signal to Elizabeth? It's confirmation of the promise. It's confirmation of the promise. It's a reason to believe that which was way too good to believe. That which years of shame and disgrace had covered over. The presence of Jesus confirms that she doesn't have to live in shame anymore. And then Elizabeth says something that blows me away. I, I, I really think you're going to hear this new. She says to Mary, Blessed are you who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to you by the Lord. Now, I always read this as Elizabeth just being like excited for her relative Mary, right? And, and celebrating with her, confirming God's grace upon her, and it is that. But in the context of what we're talking about today in Elizabeth's larger story, and particularly her shame-driven seclusion, doesn't this sound like a confession to you? Doesn't that sound like a confession? Blessed are you, Mary, because you actually believe the promise of the angel in a way that I just couldn't. I had too much shame to believe that. If you read her whole response through Luke chapter 1, it reads like a humbled confession. Why would I be deserving that you would come to me, that the Messiah would come into my house even as I'm hiding away? And here's the best news. Elizabeth is redeemed in a whole way from her shame. She's filled with the Spirit. She's humbled. She's freed. And she rejoices at the child in her womb. The end of Elizabeth's story in Luke 1, verses uh, 57 and 58. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown his great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Isn't that beautiful? She's not isolated and shamed and disgraced anymore. Even if she spent those five months hiding when she could have been rejoicing, she could have been free from that shame, she's now given redemption and freedom. The end of Hiro Anoda's story is actually kind of similar. Despite the fact that it was uh, this pull towards shame and not being shamed that drove him to fight in a war that had been over for decades, he was fully pardoned by President Marcos of the Philippines for the violence that was done to the Filipino people on that island, but also the theft of crops and goods. He was pardoned under the pretense that, quote, we cannot hold a man to war crimes that he committed when he still believed that he was at war, end quote. But there was a condition to his pardon President Marcos required that he publicly, in a public ceremony, that he turn over his sword, symbolizing that he was not going to fight anymore. And Anoda did that. Anoda moved to Brazil. He married a Japanese woman. They became peaceful farmers, and he died in 2012. A man at peace. Friends, it's time to turn over the sword of shame. Shame does not need to govern your life. Welcome Jesus into the place where you have been holding up, where you've been isolating, where you've been medicating. Confess 
the ways that you have missed his gracious presence in your life. Shame does not come from God. So you should not be living with it. Guilt and shame have no place in the economy of the kingdom of God or in the hearts and the minds of Jesus' kingdom family. So take your shame to Jesus. Take the sin that you've committed to Jesus. Take the sins that have been done unto you to Jesus. Let it die. Bury it six feet under the ground and walk away. Free. Rejoicing. No longer shamed, disgraced, and isolated. No longer fighting in a war that has long since been over. Rejoice in the presence of Jesus like Elizabeth did. Be filled with the spirit of Christ, the spirit that has put shame to its rightful debtor.